Welcome to another Sunday morning Salvation by Grace message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly in Smyrna, Tennessee. We are currently engaged in a verse-by-verse exposition through the Apostle Paul's letter to the Romans. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. turn to Romans 3. We will be starting in verse 21. We will get there eventually. On Wednesday nights, we've been teaching through the book of Job. And in Job 9, Job asks the question, how can a man be right with God? The whole of the Bible poses that very important question If God is holy, 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 like we just sang, then how can a man possibly be right with God? Did you notice the theme to the hymns that we sang this morning? You picked it up? Amazing grace, grace that is greater than all our sins, the old rugged cross, God is holy, holy, holy. You're picking up the thematic element there. That wasn't a mistake. Because today, we're going to look at what Paul says about how exactly a man can be right with God. And the answer right away is, you can't do it. 
Now, all organized religion in the history of the world, on the face of the planet, all religions that have a God concept at their base, wrestle with that question. They all start with, well, there's God and there's man, and how can a man get to God? And they have a lot of different theories about how that may work, but they all boil down to one essential element. They all boil down to, if you, the man, are going to be right with God, you got to do something. You got to get busy. It's going to be left up to you. Whatever that is, whether that's meditating or whether that's killing infidels or whether that's following the dictates of their religion and the law, whatever it is, it's always you got to do stuff. Christianity, unique in the annals of history, Christianity is the only organized religion on the face of the planet in the history of the world that says the only way you can be okay with God is if God makes you okay. You can't do it. And no other religion does that. Which, by the way, is one of the indications that those are man-made religions because, of course, egocentric men would start with, well, how do I accomplish something? I do it. Christianity pulls the rug out from under you and says a great deal about your pride, about your ego, about your self-sufficiency. And it never says anything good or positive about your human characteristics. Instead, it says you're dead in trespasses and sins. Instead, it says you're deeply depraved and fully incapable. So all other religions say, you can do it. Come on, just work hard. You can do it. That's the essence of all religion. I've just boiled it down to, you can do it. But that is what it is. Christianity says, you can't do it. And you need to know you can't do it. In fact, Paul has already told us that the purpose of God's law was never to make anybody righteous. It was to prove that everybody was sinful. So the very essence of God's dealings with his chosen people, Israel, was to prove to them that even if they had all the benefit of the law and the prophets and the ordinances and the scripture and the covenants, even if you gave them all those advantages, they still couldn't be good enough. Because there is only one thing that is completely equal with the righteousness of God. And you know what that is? The righteousness of God. That is the only thing that's equal to the righteousness of God. And we're just not. And yet, in order to be in his presence, we're going to have to be that righteous. So whether it's Job, arguably the oldest book in the Old Testament, or whether it's the New Testament, the Bible just keeps wrestling with the question, how are human beings going to be right with God? Well, the very, very good news that we're going to look at this morning does not start with, you can do it. It doesn't start with, get busy. Instead, now that Paul has spent three chapters laying out universal guilt, now that he has demonstrated that everybody everywhere is sinful before God, now he's going to begin giving the solution. And over the next many chapters, he's going to extrapolate on that solution. But he's going to tell us right now, today, what the very essence of God's redemptive work looks like and it has nothing to do with you it has everything to do with him it has everything to do with his son and you are simply the recipient of grace that is greater than all our sin so we have to do a little bit of history because Paul is going to use some theological terminology here that would have been familiar to his first century readers but over time, these biblical words, especially the big ones, the complicated ones, have kind of lost their sense of meaning. So I'm going to give you some background so that you understand the way that Paul is structuring this theology. 
Israel. I just said that God gave them all the advantages. Paul even says it. What advantage then does the Jew have? He said much in every way. He has this history with God. They not only have the Abrahamic covenant, but they also have the law that demonstrates what God expects from them, what righteousness would look like if anybody could do it. They have the ordinances. They have the prophets. They have God's revelation of himself as being high and holy. They have all of that in what we refer to as the Old Testament, what Paul refers to, what Jesus refers to as the law and the prophets. Last week I said you have to remember that that phrase, the law and the law and the prophets, sometimes is referring to the Torah itself, but sometimes it's just referring to the Old Testament scripture. Now, in that Old Testament scripture, Paul finds all the theology of Christ and of grace and of human justification and justification by faith. And so now he's going to start laying out his case for the fact that it's always been right there in their scriptures. All they had to do was understand it. All they had to do was look closely enough at it and that it it was not something new that he was making up. He wasn't forming a bunch of stuff out of whole cloth. He wasn't creating any kind of novelty. This was, in fact, what the Old Testament had always taught. And once you see it, once you start to read it, once you understand it, especially once you have the Spirit of God enlightening his word to you, it's really obvious that it's right there. It's always been there. And yet Israel collectively just couldn't seem to see it because they saw the parts that said, do stuff. And they thought, okay, by the doing stuff, then we're going to be justified. But the doing of the stuff not only was to demonstrate they weren't able to be perfectly righteous, but they also did not have the spirit of God the way that we have post-cross. And as a consequence, they weren't able to really understand the theology that was laid out in front of them. So now Paul is saying, look, this has always been here. The law has always been for the purpose of judging, not for sanctification or justification. And he's going to say that it has always been a matter of grace through faith. And he's going to defend this notion that the only way that people can become just with God, the answer to Job's question, the only way we can be right with God is through faith. And he's going to reach all the way back to Abraham, which is the beginning of Israel collectively. He's going to reach all the way back there and prove that Abraham had faith in God. And that's where his righteousness came from. God gave him righteousness in exchange for his faith. So that is fundamental to Christianity that all the way back at the beginning of God's forming a covenant with Israel, with his people, even back then, he was saying it's by faith. Faith becomes the underpinning of everything we believe, not only about how we can be justified, but how we can finally be saved, how we can ultimately be glorified, how we can stand before God and not fry. That is all based on faith. Now, through the years, whenever I have said exactly what the Bible says, and told people, you don't have to do stuff. You don't have to do the law. You don't have to do things to appease God in order to get him to save you. All you have to do is believe on the finished work of Christ. The common response I get is, that's too easy. Because human beings just want to do something but in reality casting yourself out into eternity on nothing else but your faith in Jesus Christ to make it okay between you and God eternally that's really not that easy because we 
being egocentric people, we find it really, really hard to let go of ourselves altogether and stand before God and say, I've got nothing. I've got empty hands. All I have is faith in your son. And yet Paul's entire theology is based on, if you have faith, you can be justified by God. That righteousness that you need so desperately, the righteousness of God, that righteousness will be imputed to you in exchange for faith. So Paul is going to argue that's the way it's always, always been. Now, Israel, once they got to Mount Sinai, were given the law, and Moses was told how to worship God, the process that God expected week in, week out, regularly at the Sabbaths, daily sacrifices. And then once a year, there was a day known as the Yom Kippur. We know it as Day of Atonement. Day of at one On the day of Yom Kippur, on the day of atonement, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies, a tent within a tent, and he was only allowed to go in there that one day of the year. He had to go in with sacrificial blood, and he had to go through a routine that God spelled out, all the way down to what underwear he was wearing and what outer garment he was wearing and the turban on his head with the gold plate that said holiness to the Lord. And he had a gold plate over his heart with 12 precious stones inscribed for the 12 tribes of Israel. And he had shoulder plates that had six stones on each. He had the burden of Israel on his shoulders And he had Israel like precious stones in gold over his heart. All representative of the people he was there to atone for. To accomplish getting God to bypass the sins of Israel. Now, I'm going somewhere, so stick with me. I'm just setting the stage. Now, when he went into the Holy of Holies, there was a gold box. Inside the Holy of Holies, we know it as the Ark of the Covenant. That word Ark just simply means container, the same way that Noah was in an Ark. The same way that Moses floated into Pharaoh's daughter's house in an Ark. That gold box, that golden Ark, was the Ark of the Covenant. There were three things inside that box. Do you remember what the three things were? That's exactly right. Look, it was the ladies. It was Luann and Joni who came up with the right answers. Okay, so there was Aaron's rod that budded. There was a time when Korah and his band decided that since they were also Levites, they got kind of upset about the fact that Moses and Aaron seemed to be taking the upper hand over Israel and kind of running the joint. And they said, hey, you know, we're also important. And God ended up opening up the earth and swallowing them. But that was enough to get some people riled up about, oh, yeah, hey, now why you Levites? Why not all of us? So what God did was God said, have all the leaders of all 12 houses bring their walking sticks, their staffs, and lay them before the Lord, lay them before the Ark of the Covenant. And... Aaron's rod had already been used several times by Moses. In fact, while they were still in Egypt, several of the plagues that were brought about, including turning the Nile to blood, including the plague of frogs and lice, those were brought about by Aaron's rod. And so Aaron had this walking stick, which you know he never got rid of once it's used for stuff like that. This is the rod that Moses threw down that became a snake that ate all the magician's snakes and then became a rod again. You don't just dispose of that. (laughs) So Aaron has a rod. He brings his rod. The other 11 bring theirs. They lay them before the Lord. And in the morning, Aaron's rod has sprung to life and budded. It was a dead stick. 
And now it's living. God says, put that next to the tablets of the covenant. So you've got the Ten Commandments inside that box. By the way, Steven Spielberg got it wrong. The Ten Commandments that were in the Ark of the Covenant were not the broken pieces of the first carving of God, of his own word. It was the second one, which is really, really interesting because the first stones that were given to Moses to take down to the children of Israel were cut out by God's finger and written by God's finger. Moses took them down to the people. The people were already dancing around and celebrating a golden calf. Moses threw those down. They broke, indicative of the first law of God was broken because of their disfaith, their lack of obedience, their rebellion. Moses goes back up to the mountain and has to admit to God, you remember those stones you gave me? I might have broke those. God tells him, interestingly, you cut out stones. So now we're talking about a couple of stones cut out with man's hand, and then God writes on them. Indicative of Christ. The kept law cut out with man's hands so that he was a man, but the very law of God was embodied in him. That's inside the box next to Aaron's rod that buds, which is a sign of resurrection. The third thing that's in there is the cup of manna. Jesus constantly referred to himself as the bread from heaven. And any thoroughgoing Jew understood the correlation because they knew that for 40 years their ancestors had walked through the desert and every day there was bread from heaven. Miracle bread every time you get up, except on the Sabbath. On the Sabbath, there was no bread. So on Friday, you had to pick up enough bread, and you had to trust that God would provide enough bread to get you through the Sabbath. So miracle bread from God providing for all of Israel for 400 years, take some of that put it inside the golden box next to Aaron's rod that budded next to the tables of the covenant. Now, huh? 40 years. Am I saying 400 years? I don't know what I'm talking about. (laughs) They were in Egypt for 400 years without manna. manna. They walked in the desert for 40 years. Look, math was never my strong suit. (laughs) Thank you for the correction. So you've got this golden box You've got these three things that speak of holiness, that speak of God, that speak of his covenant. Some folks have said that those three elements inside there speak of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That maybe the Holy Spirit, the resurrection power, is typified in Aaron's rod that budded. And the bread from heaven being Christ and the perfect law being God. In which case you'd have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit All three of them obviously refer to and typify Christ as well. In other words, these were really, really special holy objects. So holy, in fact, that at one point after the Amorites had uh, taken the Ark of the Covenant and their God, Dagon, fell down in front of the Ark and they said, we got to get rid of this. We got to send that back. When it was on its way back, there was a community of people who saw it on the ox cart and got curious about what might be in it. So they decided to have a quick peek. People died by looking into that box because what was in that box was so holy that human beings, sinful humans, can't be part of it, can't look on it. So what are you going to do about that? You've got this box, you've got those things in it. Well, it needs a covering then. It needs a lid. And so God told Moses exactly what kind of lid to build. And he said, you're going to make a gold covering for it. And that word is kapareth. The Hebrew word kapareth is why the day that you go into the Holy of Holies is called the Yom or day Kippur. It's the day of covering. The kapareth covers. It covers the holiness of God so that the holiness of God doesn't spill out onto sinful humans and destroy them. 
It is a holy box. In fact, so holy that that golden cover has two angels formed out of one solid piece of gold, carved as two angels whose wings wrap around and then touch each other. And between their wings, on that capareth, is the place where every year at the Yom Kippur, the blood of a sacrifice was sprinkled. That place becomes the place of atonement. Okay? Now, is everybody up with me so far? Yes. Third century B.C., Greek is becoming the language of the realm in the Middle East. Alexander the Great spread the Greek language, particularly Koine Greek, throughout his realm. So because it was becoming the language of the realm, and the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, a series of scholars decided to start translating the Old Testament into the Greek language so that Greek speakers could read it. They began that work in the third century. They finished it just barely 100 years before Christ got here. That book is known as the Septuagint. You can hear the septa right in there. It's because the, the story is that it was 70 scholars who actually did the work, even though the number 70 is, is a little mushy historically. But 70 scholars translated the Old Testament into Greek. That's the reason why we can find Old Testament quotes in our modern Bibles, and then we'll find the same quote in the New Testament, and they'll be slightly different. It's because the translators have gone back to the original Hebrew for the Old Testament, but then they've gone to the Greek for the New Testament. And so in that translation process, some of the smaller words get changed around, word order, that kind of stuff. Now, so the 70 scholars are translating the Old Testament, and they come across this capareth word. And they decided that the word they should use to translate it it's the word helasterion. The Greek word helasterion is a reference to a victim of a sacrifice. It's about sacrificing something to appease the wrath of a god. In Greek culture, not specifically Christianity, but in Greek culture at large, they would sacrifice, of course, to their gods. That process of trying to appease the anger of their gods was known by that word, helisterion. So the Greek translators decided that when they saw the word capareth, the covering on the Ark of the Covenant, they translated it as helisterion. Paul is about to say in what we're about to read that God openly displayed Christ as the helisterion. Now, the only other place in the New Testament that you find this helisterion word is in the book of Hebrews, where even the NASB translates it mercy seat because that place on the capareth where the blood flowed, where atonement was made, where mercy was found from God is that very seat of mercy. But it's the same Greek word. It's helisterion because the mercy of God is brought about as a result of God. Here's the English word propitiating his own wrath. And he was predicting he would do that for 1,400 years when every year the high priest would go in to the mercy seat, to the capareth, would sacrifice blood, and as a result of that process, the sins of Israel were abated for another year. Now what Paul is also about to tell us is None of those sacrifices, animals, sheep, oxen, birds, none of those sacrifices fully expiated and took away the sin. So as a consequence, what God did was he passed over those sins 
in his own patience, in his own forbearance, as long as they kept doing that, he kept passing over those sins because he knew the time was coming when they would be fully expiated, when the helisterion, when the sacrifice was actually made, and there'd be full covering, capareth, for their sins, and finally there would be true atonement between man and God. And that theology is what Paul's about to lay out, and that theology he's drawing entirely from the Old Testament, including by using the word helisterion, he's taking them right back to the Ark of the Covenant, to the Day of Atonement, to the High Priesthood, and he's demonstrating that this is how God has always done it, has always been teaching it, therefore faith in that results in righteousness. Got it? Yeah, that's right, by the way. I just looked over at Leon and he went, because that's right. You're talking about a God who's in such control of human history that he was willing to teach a lesson for 1,400 years so that when his son got here, he could say through people like Paul, through the apostles, he could say, look, this is what God has always been about. It's always been faith. It's always been grace. It's never been your works. It's never been your goodness. All right, that was all introduction. Are there any questions about the introduction? Okay, nobody wants to introduce a question? Okay. We are now in Romans 3, starting at verse 21. That introduction out of the way. Verse 20 has just told us By the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in God's sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So for three chapters, Paul has been laying out everybody's guilty, everybody's sinful. What are you going to do about the fact that everybody's sinful? What are you going to do about the fact that as Job asked, how is a man going to be right with God? And then to make things worse, Paul says, and the law can't help you. So the only thing you have, the only revelation from God you have of what human righteousness would look like if you could do it, no one's done it, and therefore the law can't help you. All the law does is make you more sinful. And so by the works of the law, no flesh can be justified. So he's really leaving everybody in a lurch at that point. Well, then what hope do we have? We're all sinful. We're all depraved. And there's no methodology by which we can be right with God. And even God's own revelation of the law can't help us. That's where he wants you to get. Because he says, verse 21, but now. Okay, now he's making a big transition there from under the law to after the cross. Back there under the law, back there in the Old Testament, back there as Israel was following after the ordinances of God, back there there was no hope of actual eternal justification because the law couldn't help you and nobody could do it and so there was no hope. But now... I really like that now right there. Can you tell? (laughs) Now that Christ has been to the cross, something brand new is being introduced. Now, completely apart from the law, since the law can't help you, now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. It has been Shown, it has been demonstrated, it has been laid out, it's made apparent to anybody who will look at it. The righteousness of God, which earlier I defined as there's only one thing equal with the righteousness of God, and that is the righteousness of God. And that righteousness, the righteousness of God, is now made manifest to us. So we can't do it. We're sinful and depraved. The law can't help us. We're completely destitute. Somebody has to do something and we can't do it. Paul is now going to say the righteousness of God propitiated God. And in the death of God, God was satisfied. We can't do it. He did it all. 
But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Remember I told you last week and this week that that phrase, the law and the prophets, means the whole of the Old Testament, the Old Testament scripture. So Paul is saying here, the righteousness of God is now being laid out, and it's already been told you in your scripture. It's already written in the law and the prophets. It's already there. It's there in plain statements. It's there in type and shadow. It's there in the sacrifices that go on in the temple. It's all there. You just have to understand it. It's being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God, there's that phrase again, the righteousness of God, which is directly equal with the righteousness of God, this is what's manifested, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. That's the answer. How do we get righteousness? How can a man be right with God? You can't do it. You can't live up to it. The law can't help you. Your sin, your depravity has separated you utterly and completely from God. But faith in Christ is the way that God manifested, laid out, demonstrated how the righteousness of God can be obtained by human beings. Well, you've just never heard such a good deal. Faith in Jesus Christ gets you the righteousness of God. And you have to have the righteousness of God to stand in God's presence. He's not going to debase heaven for you. He's going to maintain his perfect, righteous, holy standard in heaven. So the only way you can be an occupant there is if he gives you the righteousness necessary for your presence in heaven. And how do you get it? Faith. By faith, by trusting, by believing, by placing all your hope utterly and completely in the finished work of Christ and nothing of yourself. And as I've said, people think that sounds too easy. That's almost too much grace for some people. I think I've told you that several years ago, I got an email from a pastor typing to me in all caps so that I knew he was yelling at me. And he was saying, you can't just preach that radical grace that you preach, Jim, he called it radical grace, because I'm such a radical. And he said, you can't just preach that radical grace. He said, you have to put a little bit of law on people. If you don't, this is his quote, if you don't, they'll go crazy on you. And I wrote back to him and I said, I agree with you completely if we're talking about unsaved people. With unsaved people, you take all the rules off them, they will go crazy. That's their nature. But if you're talking about blood-bought, spirit-filled people, they know there's nothing they can do. So it's all grace, 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 grace. I don't care how radical you think it is. If you think about it logically, if you think about it mathematically, if you think about it rationally, if you've got nothing and then you're going to end up with everything, then at some point somebody added everything to your nothing. You didn't do it. You got nothing. But God is willing to add the everything to your nothing and forgive your rebellion and forgive your enemy status and forgive your trespasses and sins in exchange for faith in his son because his son is the one who gets the name that is above every name. His son is the one who gets to be glorified forever for what he did. We end up in his presence as trophies to his grace. And the only way that happens is if we have nothing of ourselves and complete confidence in him. And that, I keep saying, ain't easy. We still just want so badly to do something. 
But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed, testified to by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. For all those who believe, I told you last week, that's the exact same Greek word. It's just the verb form of the word. He's saying it's through faith in Jesus Christ to all those who have that faith, to all those that are actively faithing. For there is no distinction, Jew, Gentile, there's no distinction because all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. So now you've got the righteousness of God, which you cannot attain to, and the glory of God, which, as I said, he's not going to dissipate or dumb down just so that you can be around. The glory of God stands as perfect and holy and glorious. And the only way you're going to be able to participate in that is through faith in Jesus Christ. That gives you the righteousness of God and all of us who have failed or fallen short of the glory of God, Paul is going to say in a couple of chapters that because he chose us, because he predestined us, because he called us, because he justified us, he also glorified us. So that's the Pauline theology. How do you get the end result of glorification? Faith in Jesus Christ. It always comes back to that. Look at verse 24. Being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Where are you in that sentence? It's all being done for you. It's being justified as a gift from God, something you cannot earn. If you could earn it, that would be a payment. It's not a payment. It's a gift. It's a gift of his grace. And if it's of his grace, then it can't be of your works. It has to be the result of his kindness, his goodness, his grace. Through the redemption, the buying back that Jesus accomplished. Verse 25. When exactly did this redemption happen? When exactly were we bought off the slave market of sin? So that we would have a new owner. We are justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Whom God displayed openly and publicly as the helisterion. That's where that word shows up. And as soon as he says that. Any Jew who knows his Old Testament history is realizing that Paul has just called Jesus the mercy seat. Jesus is the place where the blood flows. Jesus is the place where atonement is made between man and God. He was displayed publicly. It wasn't a secret thing. It wasn't a private thing. He hung on a cross outside the walls of Jerusalem. And he made that propitiation. Remember I told you that the helisterion is the victim who is sacrificed to appease the wrath of a God? Well, that's what Paul's going to say. He is the propitiation through his blood. So the blood of Christ flowed. The blood of Christ that was typified by 1,400 years of animal blood on the Holy of Holies, on the mercy seat. Jesus now becomes that mercy seat, and mercy, mercy me, is it ever raining? Can you all hear back there? The rain is, is tough competition. He was displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. Through faith. Notice how often Paul keeps bringing that up. Through faith. God made it public. God had been teaching it for 1,400 years. God was the one who created the type and the antitype. And he says that that propitiation can be yours in exchange for faith. Just believe it. Just believe that your entire standing before God is a result of not you, but God. Everything that God did. 
God propitiated his own wrath in the death of his own son, and you get eternal righteousness, God's righteousness. You get to be glorified forever as a result of God propitiating himself in the death of God. You'd never come up with that. That's amazing. Only God would create something like that. Only God would come up with the idea, well, they are so incapable, and my son deserves all the glory. I will do it in such a way where their utter and complete dependence for eternity is on him. And that, by the way, is why Adam and Eve fell in the garden. That was the beginning of this whole plan. That's why people fell in the first man, Adam. But in the man, Christ, people come to new life. The, the typification starts the minute God puts human beings on the planet. And as soon as they sinned, what did God do? He killed an animal. Sacrifice starts right away. For sin comes death. That equation is set in place immediately. And then he was allowing that rather than kill them, he would cover them. There's that same concept, that same idea. He covered them with animal skins. The same way they tried to cover themselves with the work of their own hands. He covered them with the skin of a sacrifice. That same idea of covering sin happened at the Capareth in the Day of Atonement. And then Paul brings it all the way forward here to say that Jesus is that covering. You get it? Are you astounded yet? You're staring at me like an oil painting. I mean, this is amazing stuff. This, the reason he did this was to demonstrate his righteousness. Okay, so God was demonstrating his own righteousness because in the forbearance of God, in the patience of God, in the long-suffering of God, he passed over the sins that were previously committed. That's in contrast to the now. But now, there's this righteousness. In the past, that righteousness didn't exist. But the Jews were sacrificing animals and keeping the Day of Atonement and sprinkling blood and everything else. As a consequence, God did not expiate their sin. He did not utterly forgive their sin. This is the only place where Paul uses this particular Greek word where he passed over their sin because he knew the payment was coming. And the blood of bulls and the blood of goats was not sufficient payment. It was all just pointing forward to the actual payment to come. So that now the righteousness of God is openly displayed. This was to demonstrate his righteousness. Because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say... Of his righteousness at this present time. There's the now again. So in the past, he had Israel sacrificing animals, keeping the day of atonement, going through the priesthood. All of that was happening. But all of that was pointing forward to Christ, the ultimate final sacrifice. And now that that has happened, Justification and the righteousness of God is displayed without the works of the law, which were part of all of that Levitical priesthood and the Day of Atonement and all that. That was all part of the law, which never got anybody justification. It was all just typifying, pointing toward, foreshadowing the fact that Christ was going to come. And when Christ came, now there is justification and righteousness without those works of the law. During which time God was passing over the sins of Israel while they were doing those practices. But at this present time, there is now a demonstration by God of his own righteousness. So that he could be just and the justifier of the one who has, there's that phrase again, faith in Jesus. We have a sense in American jurisprudence that crime has to be paid for. 
that's why people go into the legal profession, is because they know that there are certain laws, and if you break those laws, you have to pay a price. You have to. If somebody commits some horrible crime and then gets away with it, and we find out about it, we're outraged. Like, how, how is that even possible? How'd that guy get away with that? He needs to pay. I mean, he did some horrific thing. He needs to pay. Okay, so what Paul is talking about here is that if God just simply winked at our sin, if he looked at our horrible depravity and our rebellion and he just kind of excused it based on nothing other than I felt like it, that's not justice. Justice demands payment. So he extracted the payment from the helisterion that was satisfaction so that God could justify all of us and be just doing it because you didn't pay the price, but someone did. The price still got paid. The righteousness and holiness of God is still satisfied. God is still just. And then God could justify guilty sinners like us. Again, supremely logical and wonderful and astounding. And you really need to just tattoo this to your forehead. And never forget it because I promise you before this day is out, you're going to start wondering if you're good enough. You're going to do something where you're going to think, I hope God didn't see that. Or you're going to do something that you think was so good, you think, I hope God saw that. (laughs) Man, that was good. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at this present time, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Okay, now if all that's true, what we've just laid out in the last couple of verses, and it's only been five verses, but if that theology is all true, what can you brag about? That's why I kept saying, where are you in this sentence? You can't. You can't brag about anything, and that's why God did it that way. He designed it that way on purpose because it pulls the rug out from under your pride utterly and completely. So Paul asked the question in verse 27, where then is boasting? It's excluded. But then he realizes that the Old Testament law, the Torah, would include some boasting. Like the fact that the Pharisees used to blow trumpets in front of themselves when they would do their giving or make their long prayers or wear their phylacteries. or So he says, it's not by the law, the Torah, that boasting is excluded, but it is by the law of faith. It's utterly excluded. Here's how he puts it. Where then is boasting, it is excluded. By what kind of law? By the law of works? No, not by that one, but by the law of faith. Remember last week I said that word nomos sometimes just means a teaching, just means a standard. Here when he uses that word the law of faith, he's not using it the same way that we would use the law of Moses. The law of Moses was very specific and stringent about the things you had to do. The nomos he's talking about here is the nomos of faith. And there's no doing in that outside of believing in the one that God sent. So, where is boasting? It's excluded. By what kind of law? Of works? No. But by the law of faith. For we maintain, here's the answer to the big question. This is what I've been talking about all morning. This this is going to wrap it up. This is the... Great summation for this moment. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. That's his whole theology wrapped up in a single sentence. Now remember the audience he's writing to in chapter 3. He's already identified them. They're Jews. They're the law keepers. They're the ones who believe they were justified by their flesh, by their lineage, by their heritage, by their law-keeping. 
They believed that they were achieving their own self-justification. He utterly pulls the rug out from under them and says, We maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. And that means all the works of the law, not just the Ten Commandments, but the 613 ordinances, and also the whole Levitical priesthood and all of the Day of Atonement and all of the feast keeping and all of the high and holy day, all of that, he said, you can keep all that and it's not going to get you anything. It's not going to justify you at all. Completely separately from all of that, then, you can be justified through faith in Jesus. And if that is true, then the Jew doesn't have a leg up on the Gentile because Jew and Gentile can have faith in Christ. Which is why he says, verse 29, or is God the God of the Jews only? Because that's what he knows they think. that They think the Gentiles are dogs. There's just no way that the God, Yahweh, the God of the Jews, and the Jewish Messiah could possibly be dealing with Gentiles. And he says he's not just the God of the Jews. He's also the God of the Gentiles, which, by the way, is axiomatic because God has said from the very beginning that there's only one God. His name is Yahweh. He's the only God and starts his commandments with, you'll have no other God before me. So he's the only God. So if he's the only God and there's Gentiles on the planet, it's axiomatic that he's their God. They don't happen to be worshiping him as God, recognizing him as God, but he is the only God that is. Therefore, since he's the only one with isness, then it's obvious that he's the God of the Gentiles. Is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Since indeed, God who will justify the circumcised by faith, that'd be the Jews, they're going to be justified by faith, and the uncircumcised, through faith, he is one God, the one God who does both of those. Now, it's interesting that he made a little differentiation between the circumcised and uncircumcised, and said the circumcised were going to be justified by faith, and the uncircumcised through faith. And theologians have posited all sorts of theories about why Paul would do that. What's obvious, somebody look up Hebrews 4.2 for a moment, if you would. Steve, do that for us. Look up Hebrews 4.2, and then remember that in the book of Hebrews, which is a Hebrew writing to Hebrews, stop me when this is too complicated, he says in chapter 11 that all the heroes of the Old Testament as he goes through and cites the great works that they did, in every case, he says, they did it by faith. We know chapter 11 of Hebrews as the heroes of faith because the writer of the book of Hebrews, who I could argue if it's not Paul, it's at least somebody influenced by Paul, he says that even the history of Israel and the great works that were accomplished in the history of Israel, those works were accomplished by faith. And the works that weren't by faith weren't good works. That's what Steve's going to read for us. Stand up and read nice and loud so folks can hear you. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. And it rang at the end. It was like, it was like a ding check mark. It's like, you, you done good. Okay, so did you hear that? It says that good news was preached to them the same way good news was preached to us. Remember what I've been saying the whole time? Paul is saying it was always in your scripture. It was always there. You just didn't see it. You didn't understand it. You didn't recognize it. Good news was preached to them just like good news is preached to us. But it wasn't effective to them because they didn't have faith. It was their lack of faith in what God had said to them that was missing from the works that they did. The works did not justify them. And Paul is saying, and now the righteousness of God in full justification can be had for faith. And that's how it's always been. So that would be to the Jews, 
he's going to justify them by faith. To the uncircumcised who don't have the law, who don't have that history, who don't have that background, if they trust in Christ, he's going to justify them through their faith. So whether we're talking Jew or whether we're talking Gentile, the one distinguishing characteristic that is universally the way that you get the righteousness of God is faith. Faith in Jesus Christ. Now let me make a real clear distinction here. Because there is a great deal of bad theology in the church world these days that misuses the concept of faith. And some of them say you have faith in your faith. In other words, you're going to be saved as long as you know that you revved up your own faith. And if you revved up your own faith, that's a guarantee you're going to be saved, so you have faith in your own faith. Some folks will say... Faith is the substance of things hoped for. That's true. That's written in the book of Hebrews. And so they say that through your faith, you can name it and claim it. You can say what you want done and it'll just happen by your faith. That's the word faith movement. People have abused this concept of faith. Paul is very specific with his use of the word pistis and the pisteo. He's saying what you have faith in and it is faith in Jesus Christ. It is faith in what Jesus did. And if that's where your focus and your hope and your faith is, then you're not going to try to abuse your faith in order to get God to uh, give you the desires of your heart simply because you had faith for it. And you're going to recognize that the faith you have was a gift of God. That you're saved by grace through faith, and that not of yourself, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. <coughs> so there's the consistent theology across the board in the book of Hebrews. Jesus is called the author and the finisher of faith. So it's very clear that faith is a gift of God. He gives you that faith so that you will have confidence in Christ's finished work. As a result of you having faith in the finished work of Christ, you're going to get, as a gift, the righteousness of God. Can you see why this is called good news? Because yes, it's all him. He's getting all the glory. He's the one doing all the work. He's the one who is actually saving you. And I mean saving you. And I mean from top to bottom, wall to wall, side to side, across the board. He does it all. You bring nothing to the party. He saves you by giving you the faith and the confidence, the hope, the belief in the method he used to make himself just and justifier of ungodly folks like us. And he did it by making his son the mercy seat, the helisterion, the place where the blood flowed, the place where the capareth, the covering of all our sins. He established all that by himself so that he could demonstrate his own righteousness. Wow! Last verse. So, knowing all that, do we nullify the law then through faith? You know, Jesus was accused of the same thing. He said, I haven't come to abolish the law. I've come to fulfill it. Because the law talked about him. Then he's here. He's the fulfillment of the law. And he says, I'm not trying to abolish it. It's good. It's right. And it's talking about me. And now I'm here. That would be the fulfillment of it. Paul says the same thing. Is this faith we're talking about a way of nullifying the law? And he says, no, through the law, we are establishing the theology that we're teaching you. It's already in the law. It's already there. It's already in the helisterion. It's already in the Ark of the Covenant. It's already in the elements that are inside the Ark. It's already in the high priesthood. It's already in the fall of Adam and Eve. It's already in the fact that you can't do the law. All of the stuff that you need to know about Christ in faith is already written in the law. 
Therefore, we're not nullifying the law. We're establishing the validity of the law and saying the law preached Christ. And since it preached Christ, now God can demonstrate his righteousness through faith. And all of that can be taught, extracted from the law. So just like Paul in Romans 7, we'll get to that someday. I, I, I hope I live long enough. But we'll get to Romans 7 eventually, and he's going to talk about the law again. And he's going to say that uh, the law is good. It's right. It's holy. The problem with it is we can't do it. Therefore, it's no hope to us. All it does is condemn us. And so through that teaching of God, through history, he was constantly pointing toward Christ. That makes the law, the prophets, the writings all good and right and holy and valid because they all pointed to Christ. That's where the validity comes in. You got it? You see what Paul is doing? To the Jewish audience, he is showing them that this is how God has always been. Next week, we'll start in chapter 4, and he's going to go right back to Abraham. He's going to reach all the way back to Abraham and say, Abraham was justified by faith. Before the circumcision, before the law, before Sinai, before Moses, God was already handing out justification in exchange for faith. So it's always been that way. So Paul's argument is eminently scriptural, but also phenomenally good news. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace morning message. We invite you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for weekly updates, books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding audio archive. Join us again next time as we delve into the Word of God and study His sovereign grace.